Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. In seventh grade on September 11th, 2001, it's one of those memories that I remember like it was yesterday, even though it was almost 20 years ago now. I, uh, we had early morning football practice. Does that mean we had to get there about 6 a.m.? And we would practice all the way through first period, take showers, and then go into class. And so on that day, by the time we got showered and went into our second period class, the first plane had already hit. I remember I was in my English language arts class with Miss Viafanye, who, although she was pretty intense, was one of my very favorite teachers, and she didn't take any junk off of any of us. Um, but I just, I loved her, and she was such an engaged, incredible teacher. But that day, it was really different. Instead of being engaged and interacting with us like she always was at the front, she gave us an assignment and went back to her chair, put on headphones, and was listening to the radio. I didn't really understand what was going on, so I looked over at a friend of mine, um, Case, who was not a football player, and I said, hey, did something happen? You know, I kind of, we were across the room, I kind of mouthed, like, what's going on? And I remember on a spiral notebook, he wrote the words, they knocked down the Twin Towers, and I, he held them up. And I didn't know what that meant, I didn't know what was going on, I didn't even know what the Twin Towers or the World Trade Center was at the time. Um, after about 30 minutes of working, uh, nobody was really working, though, because we were so confused, and there was just this heaviness in the room, Ms. Viafanye came back to the front and said, hey, I need to tell you guys something. A plane has flown into one of the towers in the World Trade Center, and this is what that is, and this is what that means. Um, that class soon let out, and over the next few periods, they actually set up a TV in one of the gyms. A lot of us went in there to watch, and a lot of us saw the second tower get hit. And at that point, we knew it wasn't an accident. We knew that something was happening, an attack was underway, and people were freaking out. Um, parents were coming to pick up their kids, and I remember finally my dad came to pick me up, and I think right after he picked me up, we went to Radio Shack uh, when that was still around, and he bought as many VHS, blank VHS tapes as he could, and then he just recorded the news cycles for the next like six or seven days because we knew this was a moment in history unlike anything we would ever experience again. I bet I've told that 9-11 story, my 9-11 story, like a hundred times over the last 20 years. You've probably told your 9-11 story a lot too. We keep telling them and live, they live in such a vivid, fresh place in our minds and memories because 9-11 was a defining point in our history. And if you're old enough, you remember some of the iconic images from those days as well like this one of the two, uh, the towers right after the second one was hit. And this one of President Bush being told about the attacks while at an elementary school in Florida. And this one of the Brooklyn firefighters raising the American flag among the ashes. These iconic images live on forever because that moment in history lives on forever. But we are living through another one of those defining moments in history right now. 
like 9-11, coronavirus will change our world forever. In fact, there are already iconic images. Here's one that I saw this week. This is the USNS Comfort arriving in New York Harbor on Monday morning. It is being used to treat patients who don't have coronavirus because so many of New York's hospitals have become overrun with COVID-19 patients. And as most of you know, this is all far from being over. In fact, most experts and government officials are warning us that April will be the worst month so far in terms of both loss of life and economic fallout. More iconic images will emerge and the stories about this time in history are still being written. Stories that we will tell next year and next decade and for the next hundred years. Stories that will be passed down from generation to generation as we tell our kids and our grandkids about what this time was like. So here's my question for us this morning. When we tell the story of this time, will you have a story worth telling? When we tell the story about this time, will you have a story worth telling? When we tell about where we were in this moment in history, when we tell about how life as we knew it changed completely during the coronavirus pandemic, when we tell the story of this time, will you have a story worth telling? Will your story be that you spread false information causing unnecessary panic or downplaying the severity of what was actually happening? Will it be that you faked optimism and just pretended that everything was fine, put on a happy face even though inside you were struggling? Will it be that you isolated yourself, that you didn't reach out for help, that you allowed fear and anxiety to completely rule over your life? Or, or will your story be that you persevered in love by taking care of yourself, taking care of your neighbors, and trusting in Jesus. When this crazy time is just a story we tell, will you have a story worth telling? I desperately want to have a story worth telling when this is all over. Since the end of February, which honestly feels like a lifetime ago now, we have been in this teaching series here at Restore called What is Love? We've been doing this series because when Jesus asked what the most important thing in the world was, he said, love, that we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love others. And this has felt like such divine timing to us because now maybe more than at any other point in our lifetime, our world needs to understand the love God has for humanity. And it needs to understand, it needs to see the followers of Jesus step up and love others like he has loved us. So to answer our question, what is love? During this series, we've been looking at a passage from the New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians. This was a letter written by a first century pastor named Paul who had such a radical experience with the love of God that he went from shutting down churches to starting new ones, literally went from killing Christians to eventually dying for the cause of Christ. And in chapter 13, in his letter to the church in Corinth, he describes the characteristics of this kind of true love beautifully. So if we want to understand what true love really looks like, the love that God has for humanity and the love that we are supposed to have for God and each other, there is no better place to go than 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what Paul says. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love always perseveres. That's the characteristic that we are focusing in on today while keeping that question that I just asked in mind. When the coronavirus pandemic is just a story we tell, will you, will I, will we have a story worth telling? Will our story be that we persevered in love by taking care of ourselves, by taking care of our neighbors, and by trusting Jesus? Because make no mistake about it. If our story is anything other than that one, it will not be a story defined by what Jesus says is most important. That is love. So how do we do this? As the story of the coronavirus pandemic is still being written, how do we pursue a story worth telling? How do we love with a love that always perseveres even when things get really, really hard? Well, thankfully, the answer isn't complicated but the answer isn't easy either. It's like turning down a free dessert because you're watching your weight. It's one of those things that is simple, but it's difficult. So we love with a love that always perseveres by fixing our eyes on Jesus and trusting him every moment. You may know that today is Palm Sunday the day every year when we celebrate the beginning of Holy Week and remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was greeted with shouts of praise. Here's what happened. A very large crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches, those were the palm tree branches, from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the highest point of Jesus's popularity during his time here on earth. Imagine the scene. He's coming into Jerusalem. People are throwing their coats. They're cutting these palm branches down and putting them just so he doesn't even have to walk on the ground. They so revere him. They, they start shouting, son of David. They start shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us, Savior. The son of David part is the crowd identifying him as the Messiah sent through the line of David, King David, to, to save the people. But not everyone was excited that Jesus was arriving in Jerusalem that day. John's account records the religious leaders' conversations as Jesus comes into the town. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. If you're familiar with Jesus' story, you know the Pharisees at this point have already started a plot to kill him. And as I said a moment ago, Palm Sunday is just the beginning of Holy Week. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you don't have much church background, you still probably know that Holy Week includes Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends unjustly arrested, illegally tried, and then murdered on a cross, usually reserved for the worst of the worst criminals in the Roman Empire on what we call Good Friday. By the way, this Good Friday, we are going to have a gathering. It's actually our first one in the history of our church. We used to have a citywide Good Friday service at the Irwin Center here in Austin every single Good Friday, but that has come to a stop. And so we are going to do a Good Friday gathering here at 8 p.m., 
We're going to take communion together. We're going to remember this holy week together. Because this was going to be and is a hard week for Jesus, and he knew it. He knew it. Yet, he persevered in love, because love always perseveres. Think about it, y'all. This was the week when he went to the temple and cleared out the criminals who were extorting people in the name of God. It was the week when he told stories about how the kingdom of God was for prostitutes and tax collectors and everyone else that society had cast aside. This was the week when he said the most important thing is loving God and loving others, this thing that we've been soaking in for the last year, this, this greatest commandment. It was the week when he called out religious leaders as hypocrites for trying to shut people out of God's family. It was the week when he told his followers that he was going to go away from them, but that someday he was gonna come back and finish his work of restoration. It was the week of his famous Matthew 25 speech when he says that those the world calls the least of these are not just brothers and sisters, but actual representatives of Jesus Christ himself. And he said, how we treat them is how we treat him. This was the week when he shared his last meal with his disciples and changed Passover forever. This was the week when he watched one of his closest friends betray him and another one of his closest friends deny him three times. It was the week when he healed one of the men trying to kill him. The week when he disarmed his followers and condemned violence, even violence against enemies. This was the week when even though he knew it would result in his death, he claimed to be the Messiah and on a mission to save the world. This was the week when he endured torture that most of us cannot begin to imagine. This was the week when he prayed, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing over the men who were literally nailing him to the cross. This was the week when he took all the sin of the world onto himself and allowed evil to do its worst as he died. This was a big week for Jesus. And yet, through it all, he persevered in love. And I truly believe that if Jesus can persevere in love through Holy Week, we can persevere in love through this pandemic. How can I be so sure? Because the Jesus who persevered through Holy Week and the cross is the same Jesus who lives in us as Christians. Galatians 2.20, one of my very favorite verses in all of scripture says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, he indwells you, he lives in you, and you can live his life through you. A life marked by sacrificial, persevering love. All we have to do is to trust him every day, moment by moment. We love with a love that always perseveres by fixing our eyes on Jesus and trusting in his life in us. Paul goes on to explain what this looks like in depth in his letter to the church in Rome. We're gonna camp out in this passage in Romans chapter eight for a while. So if you've got a Bible with you or your phone, if you're not watching on all of your different devices, you wanna pull it up. We're gonna be in Romans eight for the rest of our time together today. Starting in verse 10, Romans eight, verse 10. It says, if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That same spirit, that is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. That's what Paul means in Galatians when he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But not only do we have the spirit of Jesus within us, it has raised us from the dead just like it raised Jesus from the dead. We now have everlasting life, eternal life because of it. Even though we will die someday here on earth, we will live forever alongside Jesus in heaven. And Paul goes on and tells us what this everlasting resurrected life looks like day to day, not just eternally, but in our every moment. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That's something I think we all need to hear. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves to fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. It's hard for us to understand because we're so far removed from this time and place that Paul was writing to the church in Rome, but this adoption language is so powerful that Paul uses here. In the first century world, the eldest son of any family received the most inheritance. So being adopted and giving what Paul calls full right of sonship meant that even though it wasn't your family of origin, you were now on equal footing with the eldest son. So for us, being adopted into the family of God means we have been set up as co-heirs with Jesus. We are children of God, given full rights therein. We have that good, good father we sang about last week who loves us more than we can ever imagine. Paul says, now that we have the spirit, now that we have been adopted into the family of God, we need to live by the spirit. Now that we are children of God, we need to live like the sons and daughters that we are. This means no longer being slaves to sin and to fear. We have been set free from that bondage. But it doesn't mean that we are no longer affected by the brokenness of this world. Paul says, if Jesus wasn't exempt from suffering, then we certainly won't be either. But y'all, we don't just share in his suffering. We also share in his glory. And the suffering is nothing compared to the glory. Verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. This is the story of our world because humanity turned their backs on the love of God. His perfect world broke. 
And because we continue to turn against the ways of love that God has shown us, this world continues to experience brokenness. Our world, the creation, is in slavery to decay. So much so that Paul says it groans in pain. Our world is broken. And not only do broken things not work properly, broken things bring brokenness. Broken things bring brokenness. You've probably heard that expression, hurt people hurt people, right? The same is true with our world. Broken things bring brokenness, like disease and natural disaster. Coronavirus is a product of a broken world filled with broken people bringing brokenness. If we had worked through this passage a month ago or two months ago, I think many of us would be like, yeah, I I guess that's true. The, The world groans and the suffering is hard. But it would have been mostly like personal trauma, singular issues that we were having maybe relationally or at work or something like that. But now humanity has collective trauma. We see the world groaning out, crying out in pain more vividly than I think ever in most of our lifetimes. It's not theoretical anymore. Now, each and every one of us are experiencing the effects of our broken world very tangibly. And it's not just creation that groans out in pain. Verse 23, and we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We are groaning too. We wait for the full rights of our adoption to come through, which is the redemption of our body, the restoration of all broken things. But we do not wait like those who have no hope. Verse 24, we were given this hope when we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit prays for us. What a beautiful passage. The Spirit in us prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I hope this is encouraging to you right now. Just this little piece that even when things are so hard that we can't even figure out what to pray for, the Spirit of Jesus is with us, praying for us, interceding for us, and comforting us. And then comes the climactic statement from Paul as he ends this passage, a verse that probably some of us are familiar with. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, in pandemics, in coronavirus, in war, in pain, in suffering, in all things, God is working for good. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that all things are good. What's happening right now in our country and in our world is not good. We may be able to find some silver linings, but anything that brings death and destruction like this pandemic must never be called good. 
but God is still with us. He is still working. Like a press squeezes grapes into wine, God is squeezing drops of goodness out of this painful season. And the question becomes, how do we do this? How do we trust Jesus's life in us during a time like this? How do we find the good God is doing in the middle of so much bad? How do we keep persevering in love when life feels hopeless? Well, I believe the answer in a time like this is a little bit different from what many of us might think and even maybe from what we've been told. I think the answer is something called lament. Lament is defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. You may not know, but lament is an integral part of the story of Scripture. The Bible is filled with people walking through difficult times and choosing to lament and God leading them to lament. It's healthy. It's good. There's actually an entire book dedicated to it called Lamentations. And about 70% of the songs in Psalms are laments. A pastor named Paul Miller once famously said, there is no such thing as a lament-free life. To love is to lament, to let your heart be broken by something. If you don't lament over the broken things in your world, then your heart shuts down. We are in a time where I believe lament is more necessary than many times that most of us have ever experienced before. With the rest of our time of teaching this morning, I want to show you one of these psalms of lament. Psalm 13 was written by King David during a time of unknown pain and suffering in his life. And I actually think it's super beautiful and really cool that we don't know exactly what he's facing during this time. Because the unknown circumstance actually breeds and broadens the commonality of this psalm. Because any of us facing any difficult thing could have written something just like it. We can identify with every word in it. Psalm 13 is broken into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and verses 5 and 6. And the sections, they give us a great picture of what lament looks like and, and the three steps for how we can really put it into practice. The first step is simply be honest with God. That's step one in lament, be honest with God. This is where it all begins. And let me let you in on a little secret. God already knows how you're feeling. He already knows the thoughts that you don't tell anyone else. He's God, right? Hiding, from, hiding it from him only breeds a false sense of separation between you and him. Be honest with him because he already knows he isn't mad. He isn't judging how you're feeling. He isn't condemning you. David begins his psalm of lament like this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? In David's circumstances, like in many of ours right now, God feels far away. David says that he is battling, struggling against his own thoughts. Maybe that means his mind is racing and he just can't slow it down. Maybe it's anxiety or depression or doubt, but regardless of what exactly it is for David, I know so many of us can identify with battling against our own thoughts right now as our minds run wild. If you feel like God is far away and doesn't care, 
tell him that. If you can't stop doing battle with your own thoughts or like David, you feel so burdened by the sorrow in your heart, tell him that. He already knows anyway. And more than that, when we are honest with him, he actually laments alongside us. This is an unbelievably beautiful thing. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named N.T. Wright, wrote an article about God and coronavirus for a time this week. It was so encouraging to me around this topic, especially this part I want to read to you. He says, The point of lament, woven thus into the fabric of the biblical tradition, is not just that it's an outlet for frustration, sorrow, loneliness, and sheer inability to understand what is happening or why. The mystery of the biblical story is that God also laments. Some Christians like to think of God as above all that, knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles of his world, but that's not the picture we get in the Bible. God was grieved to his heart, Genesis declares, over the violent wickedness of his human creatures. He was devastated when his own bride, the people of Israel, turned away from him, and when God came back to his people in person, the story of Jesus is meaningless unless that's what it's about. When God comes back to his people in person, he wept at the tomb of his friend. Our God laments with us. So be honest with him. Tell him how you're feeling. That's the first step. Step two is to ask for help. Ask him for help. Ask boldly, tell God what you want and what you need in this moment. I want to encourage you to not shy away with a prayer like, God, do whatever you think is best. God, this is hard, but, but it's fine. I'm not even going to ask for anything. Just, just do whatever you do. That's not authentic. That's not how you're really feeling. Here's how David does it. He says, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. He's like he's grabbing God's metaphorical face and saying, look on me, Lord my God. Give me light in my eyes. I need help. So what are the desires of your heart during this time? For the world to go back to normal again? for you to be able to get out of your house, for people to be healed, for a job that provides for you and your loved ones. Not only does he already know what you're feeling, he already knows what you want. So tell him, be honest with him. That's step two. The last step is choose to trust. Even when things are hard and even when you don't know if you'll get what you want, choose to trust God. Here's how David ends his Psalm of Lament, verse five. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I put has been in bold there because I want you to notice something vitally important about these verses. David doesn't say that he trusts God because of what he will do. He trusts God and praises him because he has been good to him. We can trust God and praise him in the midst of lament, in the midst of pandemic, because God has always been with us. He's been so good to us, even when we haven't been very good to him. The Bible says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And because of that past experience with God's faithfulness, we can choose to trust him now and forevermore. 
And when we trust him, we are trusting the persevering love of Jesus within us. And even through a time like this, like the week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, even though it might be some of the hardest we have ever faced in our lives, Easter is coming. Resurrection is coming. Restoration is coming. But even with that hope in mind, please don't skip over this time. Don't self-medicate. Don't retreat to negative coping mechanisms and don't Put on a mask and pretend like everything's fine when it's not. Allow yourself to grieve. Allow yourself to lament. Be honest with God and with others about how you are feeling, what you are going through during this time. Because persevering in love doesn't mean pretending everything is fine when it's not. In times like these, persevering in love means choosing to trust in the midst of lament in the middle of our grief. Your story is still being written. My story is still being written. Choose a love that always perseveres. Choose to trust the spirit of Jesus within you. And I believe that at the end of this time, you will have a story worth telling. So here's our challenge for this week. Allow yourself to practice lament. I'm challenging you to do it because I did it this week and it was absolutely transformative for me. So whether it's through journaling or art or music or just conversation with somebody that you love and trust, put these three practices into practice. Take these three steps this week. Number one, be honest with God. Number two, ask for help. Number three, choose to trust. I was able to lean into lament this past week. And I'm telling you, it did absolute wonders for my soul. So I'm gonna close this morning by praying a prayer of lament that I walked through with Jesus this week. And I just wanna pray it over all of us and I hope that it's helpful. So here we go. This is a prayer of lament in the time of coronavirus. How long, O oh Lord, how many more of our brothers and sisters will lose their jobs? How many more of our mothers and fathers will lose their retirement? How many more of our grandmothers and grandfathers will lose their lives? Where are you, Lord? Do you care that my fears overwhelm and my anxiety spin out of control? Do you see me as I stumble through fear-filled days and lie awake through sleepless nights? How many weddings and funerals and birthday parties and church services have to be canceled to get your attention? We need you, Lord. Give sustenance to those who can't work and safety to those who can't stop working. Bring healing to those who are sick and hope to those who are afraid. Give us your peace that surpasses all understanding. We trust you, Lord, because you didn't come to kill us. You came to die for us because you are in the business of bringing beauty from the ashes, because you've never failed before and you won't start now, because the empty grave testifies that even death cannot defeat you. We trust you because although it may look dark tonight, joy and resurrection come in the morning. Amen.